The word of the Lord comes to us today from 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, so, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10a, and if you are using an ESV Bible, that would be page 1018. So we continue the series through 2 Peter, we'll read uh, 2, 1 to 10a, would you please stand if you're able as we honor the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father, we are your church, your sheep, and we long to hear the voice of the shepherd. And so we pray that everything that we need from you today, you would provide that your spirit may demonstrate your power among us in addressing our own hearts, exposing lies that we believe, encouraging us in the truth that we hold to, so that in all these things we may persevere and that Christ may be exalted in us. For we pray in his name, amen. You may be seated. One of the blessings of living in this current age in which we live, which has been called the information age, is the incredible abundance of biblical and theological teaching materials that we can access easily. Everything from conferences to bookstores to online resources to podcasts, thousands and thousands of resources you can bring up in a few seconds. What a time to be alive. One of the curses of this current time in which we live, call it the information age, is the incredible abundance of biblical and theological teaching materials that we can access easily. I have a PhD in systematic theology. I've been a pastor for over a decade. I can't keep up with all of it. And I know, from what I'm, I'm aware of, there are a good number of teachers out there today who have platforms, who have ministries, 
who have influence, who have followings, and I would not trust them to teach a Sunday school class at this church. If false teaching is a threat in every age of the church, and it is, how much more so is it a threat in the information age? We must be on guard against false teaching. Now, why this matters for us is because if if you are accustomed to thinking of the Christian life as, as a journey in which you travel as an individual and you find your own pathway, you, you navigate the marketplace of ideas just like you do with other things that you go out and buy. You, you'll pull a little bit of resources from here and over here and, and, oh, there's a local church. I'll draw a little bit from there too, but I'm going to curate my own discipleship program based on what I can gather from the marketplace If that's your approach, then you're doing it wrong. The New Testament doesn't envision the Christian life as drawing your own resources from a marketplace of ideas. As helpful as these these, uh, resources can be, if used properly, the bottom line is the internet cannot pastor you. The conference circuit cannot be a local church to you that affirms your confession of faith and holds you accountable to walk as a believer in Jesus Christ. Your local Christian bookstore can't curate just the right resources that are held to precise doctrinal standards. What you need in order to guard yourself from false teaching, because it can be so subtle in the way that it comes, what you need to guard yourself is a solid local church to which you are committed. A local congregation that that will hold you accountable, will affirm that you're a believer in Christ, or will hold you accountable to your confession of Christ. A local congregation that has its own confession of faith that outlines these are the boundaries that we regard as sound teaching. A congregation that has a church covenant that lays out what it looks like to walk the Christian life faithfully. A congregation that has elders or pastors who will give an account for your soul and who are therefore dedicated to overseeing you as you walk in the faith. We need a covenantal bond with a local church and submission to a local church as the greatest defense against false teachers. And they are out there today. And without the protection of the church, uh, they are oftentimes able to influence us much, much more. Peter warns against false teachers in all of chapter 2, of this letter, 2 Peter. And his way of arguing is to say that, that just as in the Old Testament era God gave the Scriptures, and, and he's just made reference to that in chapter 1, uh, verses 19 to 21, God spoke through men by the Holy Spirit in giving the Scriptures that, that bear witness of Christ. Uh, God, God spoke those words. Men did not. But he acknowledges here in verse 1 of our text that as God was giving the Scriptures to the Old Testament prophets, there were also false prophets among the people. There were those who spoke the words of men and sought to lead Israel astray after false gods. And and just as it was the case then, so is it the case now, alongside faithful teachers like the apostles of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, Peter says, there will be false teachers among you. It is simply a given. And so Peter, in warning against false teachers, is telling us that we must be prepared to resist false teachers by recognizing the threat they pose and the judgment that they will face. And that's the main point 
of verses 1 to 10 here. Resist them by recognizing the threat they pose and the judgment that they will face. And we're going to work through the text here. And as we do, may God give us discernment of what is true, what is false, and may he give us vigilance to guard the truth of the gospel in our own lives, in our families, and in this church. So we're going to begin by noting first the threat of false teachers. The threat of false teachers in verses 1 through 3a. Don't ever assume that false teachers are a threat in other places. They're a threat in other churches, they're a threat in other cities, they're a threat in other parts of the world, but not here. Don't assume that. Peter says we need to be on guard against them. And in these first three verses, I'm going to note four actions of false teachers that shows us just how great a threat they are. And so I'm going to put each one of these up on the screen. So uh, you, you can write these down if you'd like. But the first action of false teachers that shows their threat is false teachers will arise from within the church. They will arise from within the church. This is what makes them such a threat. Uh, they don't, in other words, come with a sign hanging around their neck that says, outsider, false teacher, beware. They don't come necessarily proclaiming things that are clearly and openly bizarre. Rather, they mix just enough truth with their falsehood, and they come oftentimes from voices that we've learned to trust. And as a result, we might find ourselves following after them without discernment if we are not careful. In verse 1, Peter writes, But false prophets arose, also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Notice that they secretly bring in these teachings. They don't openly proclaim that they're false teachers. They secretly and subtly get through our defenses to introduce them to believers. Peter says they even deny the master who bought them. This echoes what Jude says in Jude uh, verse 4, uh, where he speaks of those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, in Peter's day, what that meant was these false teachers were denying that the second coming was ever going to happen, that Christ was going to come again, and thus there was going to be no final judgment, and thus there's no accountability for what we do now. They were promoting sin by denying a central truth of the Christian faith. Now, when it says denying the master who bought them, some have argued that what this means is that Jesus atoned for their sins, but they remained outsiders and unbelievers. But that's not the, the category in which Peter's speaking here. When Peter says bought here, he doesn't mean merely atoned for. What he means is redeemed. They will deny the master who redeemed them. And so he's speaking of those who are inside the church, those who are professing faith in the true gospel, those who are uh, professing believers. Notice the parallel in verse 20 of the same chapter. If you read verses 20 to 22, it says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that's the language of conversion, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit 
And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The language Peter uses here is the language of apostasy, meaning falling away. They make a profession that they are those who belong to Christ, but then they deny the master who bought them. Now, is Peter saying that from God's perspective, that means it is possible for one to be saved and in God's favor, justified, born again, regenerate, all of those blessings of conversion, and then subsequently to lose those blessings and fall back into condemnation. Is, is Peter saying that? I don't think he's saying that at all. I think what he's me, uh, speaking of here is appearances. He's speaking the language of appearances, just as we might say the sun rose this morning. Um, that's the language of appearances. I think he's saying those who deny the master who bought them are denying the confession they have made. But the spiritual reality is that they never knew the Lord. And I base that on uh, three arguments I'll give you quickly here. One is, if you look down to verse 3, at the end of verse 3, Peter, speaking of these false teachers, says, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He's speaking as though their condemnation is something known by God from eternity and, uh, and is never something that shifts back and forth. They're condemned at one moment, but not at another. From God's perspective, it's, it's one reality. Furthermore, if you look in chapter 1, verse 10, Peter has just urged his readers to grow in the virtues that he lists in verse 5 to 7, and he tells them, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So notice what he's saying there. By practicing holiness, by growing in holiness, what are you doing? You're confirming the reality of your calling, that is God's calling of you to Christ in faith, and your election, that is God's choice of you from eternity. So God's sovereign work in salvation is not something Peter envisions being changed back and forth, as though you might be called and elect at one moment, but not at another. What he says is that your life demonstrates the reality of whether you are called and elect of God. And so, again, from God's perspective, these things are not shifting back and forth. And then uh, just two other verses you can write down to check on. Uh, in the New Testament that speak of apostasy. 1 John 2, 19 and Matthew 7, 23. In 1 John 2, 19, John tells us of false teachers who left the church, and he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Because if they were, they would have remained. So their going out is what demonstrates they were not of us. They were not born again believers. And then Jesus will say to many in Matthew 7, 23, on the last day he will say to many, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Many false teachers and false believers on that day. What he's saying is, I never knew you. You were never one of mine. Uh, just like he said to Judas, one of you is a devil in, uh, in John chapter 6 when the twelve were left. He knew from the beginning who would betray him. So the broader teaching of the New Testament makes it plain that apostasy is what happens to professing believers who do not know the Lord. And that's what Peter is speaking of here. But because they are professing believers within the church, that is precisely what makes them harder to detect. More likely to slip past our defenses. And so false teachers will arise from within the church. That's one reason they're a threat. Second, and we can move more quickly through the, the last three, false teachers will gain a big following and bring reproach on the gospel. Notice in verse 2, Peter writes, And many will follow their sensuality, 
And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow after false teaching. Now, what that indicates to us is that just because a movement is big does not mean it is credible. Just because a movement is popular among those who name the name of Christ doesn't mean that it can be trusted. Peter's making the point here that natural human desire, sensuality, appealing to the flesh, that's something anybody can do and get a following, right? Uh, There's a reason the health and wealth gospel is so popular, isn't there? Because people want health and they want wealth. Those are natural human desires. You appeal to that with a message. You're saying it's from God and you're guaranteed all these things. you'll, You'll get a big following that way. Well, false teachers, they can gain a big following. And when they do, they end up with multitudes who name the name of Christ and yet who promote sin. And that's why the way of truth is blasphemed. Because those who follow after false teachers make it appear as though Christ endorses sin. And thus they cloud the truth of the gospel uh, for the world to see. And thus false teachers bring reproach on the gospel by their followings. That's a second uh, aspect of their threat. A third action false teachers will seek to enrich themselves. In verse 3, Peter says, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. These are greedy men. Just as it was, uh, just as it is in our day where where greedy men have an ability, smooth-talking men have an ability to deceive naive believers out of money. Send this to my ministry and you'll have uh, this blessing or that blessing, or I'll send you a prayer cloth and it'll heal you. You know, all these things. There have been smooth-talking men all throughout the history of the church. There have been greedy men who have exploited the faithful, the, the naive, I should say, who have exploited them with false words and amassed wealth for themselves. Now, this is not the only test of a false teacher, but it is one test, one test to ask yourself. Is this a man who is a lover of money? When you see the man's ministry, when you interact with him, do you get the vibe from him that he's a lover of money? Because 1 Timothy 3 verse 3 says explicitly, an elder cannot be a lover of money. And so if you get that vibe from a teacher, beware. Beware. This man, uh, he may be captive to his greed. And then fourth, The fourth action of false teachers. False teachers will spread lies that cause destruction. I want to highlight especially the words false words in verse 3. They will exploit you with false words. Peter's really coming full circle here because in chapter 1 verse 16, he was answering a charge that was apparently being brought against the apostles. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel we proclaim and the future coming of Christ we proclaim, that's not myths, that's not fabricated words. On the contrary, false teachers are the ones who declare fabricated words. They're the ones who spread lies that come from the devil. They're the ones who mix error with truth so that it distorts and confuses and obscures what God has spoken. And the result of such teachings is destruction. Peter calls them, if you look again at verse 1, he calls them destructive heresies. Teachings that not only cause division in the church, 
but more importantly, teachings that destroy souls. Teachings that send people to hell, in other words, by diverting them from the true gospel and leading them into sin so that they will face God's judgment on the coming day. So in all these ways, Peter's making a case. False teachers are a threat, and they are a threat to be taken seriously. And then we come second to Peter's instructions on how we resist false teachers or why we should resist them when he tells us uh, second the destiny of false teachers and of the righteous. The destiny of false teachers and of the righteous in verses 3b through verse 9. If you're prone to thinking that doctrine doesn't really matter all that much, you know, that's a slogan today. A lot of people say that. I don't care about doctrine. I just want to love Jesus. Good question. Ask yourself, who is Jesus? However you answer that, that's a doctrine. So um, if you're prone to think doctrine doesn't matter, pay attention to what Peter says at the end of verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Those who spread false doctrine will answer for their sins. They may not be answering for it now, in what we can see, if they have a big following and a big platform and a lot of wealth and, and uh, fans and so forth. But make no mistake, Peter says, what you see now is not an indication of how it will always be. God will defend his truth and God will bring down those who distort it. And so when he mentions their, their uh, condemnation from long ago, it seems that he may be referring to stories of the Old Testament that depict God judging the wicked. And he's saying that these stories are patterns of the way God acts, and they're, they're pointing us to the judgment that is to come. And that judgment will include false teachers and those who follow them. And so in verses 4 to 9 then, Peter is going to lay out for us two stories from the Old Testament. Now I say two stories... And you may have read it and you thought there were three, and you're entitled to that opinion. Um, but I think it's actually two stories. I think Peter's making a point about two stories. And the reason I say that, one of the reasons, is because Peter's main point in this section is in verse 9. And if you look at verse 9, he's going to make two theological arguments about God's action. One, God knows how to rescue the godly. And then two, he knows how to punish the unrighteous. So if you, if you keep both of those in view, then you look back at verses 4 to 8, it looks like Peter's mentioning angels, a story about angels, then he's mentioning the story of Noah and the ancient world, then he's mentioning the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Well, if those are his two points about rescuing the godly and keeping the unrighteous under judgment, then the story about angels doesn't have both elements if it's by itself. See, it's just a story of judgment, there's no rescuing of the godly in that story, if you read it as its own story. However, it's possible, I think likely, that Peter intends us to read verses 4 and 5 together and to recognize verses 4 and 5 as a reference to one story, one single story of judgment upon the wicked that included both angels and the ancient world and the rescue of righteous Noah and his family from that same story. Now, if you, you want to see Old Testament data to back that up, you just need to write down Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Genesis 6, 1 to 4, you go back and read that text, you'll note that there's a reference to the sons of God 
who saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took his wives any that they chose. Now, there's controversy about what that means. I think Peter and Jude both tell us that that story is about angels rebelling against God and intermarrying with human women. There's all kinds of questions about that, but um, I think that's the argument Peter's making. If you disagree, obviously we could have discussions further about that, but um, that I think is the most likely interpretation of what he's saying. So he's speaking of the angels specifically at the time of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, these angels who sinned, God did not spare them, but he, he cast them into hell and committed them to, claim, to, to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There is a footnote on the word hell in the ESV in verse 4. And if you look at the footnote, you'll notice this is not the customary word for hell in the New Testament. Normally, hell refers to the place of final judgment, what Revelation calls the lake of fire. Uh, Peter does not appear to be speaking of that. He uses a word that means Tartarus, or that could be translated Tartarus, which is a reference to the underworld, the holding place of the unbelieving dead and of angels whom God has judged in advance of the coming final judgment. Think of it as a holding cell in preparation for the judgment that is to come. And so Peter's making the point, God did not spare angels, but he, he punished them, he restrained their activity, and now he has them awaiting the judgment to come. Furthermore, in verse 5, he did not spare the ancient world. The entire generation in which Noah lived, God did not spare, but wiped it away by the waters of a flood. And then he makes two points about Noah in speaking of Noah's deliverance. One point is that Noah was part of a tiny minority. You notice he says uh, in verse 5 that he preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others. So Noah and his family constituted the last eight godly people left on earth. But a second thing he says about Noah is that he's a herald of righteousness, a man who preached the true God and called his own generation to repentance during his time. What's interesting about that is that if you read the story in Genesis, you don't actually see that ever said of Noah. You don't ever see Noah preaching, uh, explicitly said so. However, Genesis does say in chapter 6, verse 9, Noah walked with God. And it uses the same language of Enoch in chapter 5 earlier. What does it mean to walk with God? This is the kind of language that suggests that Noah and Enoch were men who were part of God's inner circle. They were welcomed into God's counsels. They were given revelation from God and thus they were prophets of God to their own generation. Peter seems to be picking up on subtle hints in Genesis to tell us, Noah represented the true God through his preaching to the generation around him. Now, ultimately, to no avail, no one save his family believed in the true God. No one save his family were saved from that coming judgment. Nevertheless, he bore witness as a faithful prophet to his generation. That's one story. The ancient world, the angels who are destroyed, and Noah who is rescued. A second story then in verses 6 to 8 is that of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is told for us in Genesis 19, a city that was very wicked. Sodom in particular is, is the focus there, a very wicked city that God judged by sending fire from heaven to reduce that city to ashes and destroying every person who lived there except for Lot, the nephew of Abraham, 
and his two daughters who escaped. You notice here three times Peter uses the word righteous when he refers to Lot. Three times. And that may strike you as odd if you're familiar with the story of Genesis. Because when you read about Lot, you see him a man who has some serious flaws. Uh, The biggest flaw, I guess, of his life is that he chose to live in Sodom when given that choice. He chose material gain that he thought he could have there over caring for his own well-being and the spiritual well-being of his family. And, of course, he paid a dear price on multiple occasions for that foolish choice. So he was a flawed man, and there's other stories that indicate his flaws that we could talk about. But maybe Peter is highlighting Lot as a righteous man rescued from his generation. Um, We know he was righteous because he wasn't swept away with the judgment in in chapter 19. Maybe Peter's highlighting him alongside Noah as a way of showing us that whether you're like Noah and you seem to have it all together, or whether you're like Lot and you've got your set of flaws and you even have to live with consequences of bad decisions you've made, what matters most is that you're holding on to the Lord in faith and that you're trusting in Him to deliver you. In spite of all his flaws, Lot is called here three times a righteous man, a man who belonged to the Lord, a man who, witnessing the immorality around him in Sodom, tormented his soul by the things that he saw and heard because he did not fit in with the men of Sodom. So those are the two stories that, um, that Peter tells us of Noah and of Lot and of the judgment during their time. But as we go through verses 4 through 8, we cannot lose sight of the overall argument. And the overall argument is given in the if-then structure of what Peter's saying. He says if in verses 4 through 8 several times. You notice that? If, 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 if. If you see an if, you need a then, right? So where's the then? It's in verse 9. You come to verse 9. Here's the conclusion, the main point Peter is making. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This is a very comforting verse because it tells us that God can be trusted to do for us what He has done in the past. He is the same God for us today that He was for Noah that he was for Lot in their own day. And he is a God who's already demonstrated by his actions. He knows how to rescue the godly. He knows how to deliver us from his coming judgment. And he knows how to hold the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Interesting wording there, by the way. He doesn't just say he knows how to judge the wicked, but how to hold them under punishment until the day of judgment. As though he's speaking of judgments within history that occur that bring down and restrain the influence of false teachers, even within history, in advance of and in anticipation of a final judgment to come. We must trust that God will protect His church, that He will bring down false teachers in His own appointed time and way and hold them under judgment until the final day. This is an encouragement to me to reflect on these stories and on verse 9 and the conclusion that Peter draws because I am prone to think that we live in a uniquely bad generation. Have you ever thought that? 
Have you ever thought, my goodness, how, how can we even survive as a society when we don't know anymore how to define male and female? And so many other things we could talk about. That's the tip of the iceberg. Are we a uniquely bad generation? I don't think we are. As bad as it may seem to us, I don't think we can fathom what it would be like to be one of the last eight people on earth who knew the Lord. Noah knew that. As bad as it may be, I don't think we can fathom how horrifying it would have been to witness what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot knew that. And so uh, let's draw some encouragement from this verse and this teaching that as bad as it may seem to us today, God's people have been through it all before. God was faithful then. God will be faithful now. We can trust Him to care for us, to rescue us, and ultimately to bring down those who oppose Him. And so that is the destiny of false teachers and of the righteous. That's Peter's argument. Don't follow them because they're headed for judgment. But I want to make a third point here in conclusion. Uh, and that is in verse 10, the first part of verse 10, typical characteristics of false teachings. Typical characteristics of false teachings. I want to, to meditate on what Peter tells us in verse 10 so that we know how to, to recognize false teaching when it appears. One of the most difficult questions we may face is, how do I know when a matter is a false teaching that requires me to draw boundaries and to take a stand? And how do I know when it's something where believers can simply disagree with one another charitably in good faith and still walk together as brothers? That can be a tough question. And you, you have examples of both in the Scripture. Well, I think there are two main tools that can guide us in answering that question. One is we have the New Testament itself. The New Testament, in almost every book, gives a warning against false teachings, and it often characterizes what those false teachings are like. And so by following, say, Paul's letter to the Galatians or 1 John with its teaching about the incarnation or, or take your pick of any book in the New Testament, following along with how the author unpacks what the false teaching is and how it threatens the gospel, we can get a pattern of teaching that tells us these are the kinds of things where we need to draw boundaries. Paul, for example, draws boundaries around justification by faith. John draws boundaries around the incarnation. Anything that would deviate from the incarnation is false teaching. You can see those boundaries taking shape in the New Testament, and you can follow the apostles' pattern in addressing those matters. And then, in addition to the New Testament, we have another tool. We have 2,000 years of the church's reflection and teaching on these issues. We have a rich tradition that's been handed to us after 2,000 years of hard theological work where boundaries have been drawn and confessions have been drawn up, creeds have been formatted, uh, formulated, and, uh, and warnings have been given and uh, different positions have been defined. We need to draw on the rich history of the church to be a guide to us into understanding all that the Bible teaches. This is why, for example, we have a Sunday school class every spring that focuses on another period of church history and that seeks to lay forth what is the tradition we've inherited and how can we receive that well and be a good steward of what the church has handed down to us. Well, with that in mind, I want to look then at verse 10. And I want to notice together this morning 
what are these two elements of false teaching that Peter highlights in particular? Notice what he says. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Peter tells us that two marks of false teachers, both their lives and their teaching, is that they promote sexual immorality and they despise authority. These are two preeminent marks of false teaching and thus two things for us to beware of. Now, when he mentions sexual immorality, it seems likely that he's alluding to both stories of Genesis 6 with the angels who committed sexual immorality with women and the men of Sodom who sought to commit sexual immorality with the angels who visited there, although they thought that they were men. So he highlights that in particular because those are elements of the stories he has just mentioned. But I think he also highlights it because sexual immorality is simply a pervasive issue in human society. It's always with us. It's always going to tempt us. It's always going to threaten the well-being of the church. So, for example, when you see a church that has a rainbow flag displayed out in its front, you've seen a church then that's given itself over to false teaching, a church that has openly embraced an identity with regard to sexual immorality that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Scripture is very clear. Sexual activity is designed by God to be uh, enjoyed between a husband and a wife, and that's it. That's the boundary God has established. That is the boundary of covenant fidelity and fruitfulness. It is the boundary of a one-flesh union that God has designed as good. But any sexual activity that takes place outside of that boundary is sexual immorality. And any promotion of such is, Peter tells us, contrary to the gospel. And here I want to speak a word against one whom I count a brother, one who is a, a very gifted pastor, one whom, from whom I've learned a lot. But a, a brother who, who made a statement that I think was very unwise and uh, really constitutes, in my view, pastoral malpractice. Uh, some time ago, J.D. Greer, the pastor of Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, he was preaching on Romans 1, and he's noting um, Paul's teaching about homosexuality in Romans 1, and, and his exposition was fine, it was good. He, he acknowledged that Paul is showing homosexuality to be a, a sinful activity that is a result of God handing people over uh, to their idolatry and the breakdown of nature and so forth. He, he didn't, didn't do a bad job uh, exegeting the text. But then when it came to applying it, he made a very unwise move. He said, uh, number one, in, in principle, he said, we need to whisper about the things the Bible whispers about and shout about the things the Bible shouts about. Well, I, I think I agree with that principle. That's a good principle. But then the way he applied it was to say this. When it comes to sexual sin, the Bible whispers by comparison to what it shouts about materialism and religious pride. That was his application of that principle. And I just want to say to, to J.D., that is simply false. That is simply false and dangerous to suggest to this generation, living at the time when we live, when sexual immorality is rampant in our world, to suggest that it takes a back seat to other more serious sins. The Bible does not present it that way. Not even remotely. 
It's mentioned in virtually every book of the Bible. It's warned against in virtually every book of the Bible. The strongest terminology about sin is used with reference to sexual immorality in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul tells the church at Corinth to take the strongest possible action they can against a man by handing him over to Satan. Why? Because he was involved in unrepentant sexual immorality. Romans 1, the very passage that Greer was preaching that day, what does it actually tell us about homosexuality? It tells us it is contrary to nature and is the result of God handing people over to their folly as they have rejected the one true God. It is the very breakdown of human nature as such and a demonstration of God's wrath in the present age. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, for this is the will of God. Is there any more important question? This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. And I could go on and on and on. By comparison, even by comparison to any other sin, the Bible never whispers about sexual immorality. It shouts and it shouts and it shouts some more. And it tells us, you take this seriously. You guard yourself and you guard your teaching. You guard your influence over others. You guard what you're listening to, what you're taking in. Because anything that would seek to move your conviction from the truth that the church has confessed for 2,000 years, that sexual activity is for a husband and a wife in a marriage, anything that would contradict that is false and is a threat to the gospel. We will take our stand here. We will draw a line in the sand. And we will say, take us to jail if you want to, but we are not budging on that confession. That's the first. The second is that Peter mentions those who despise authority. Another mark of false teaching is false teachers despise authority. Not only in themselves, but they would promote then the despising of authority. Authority is such an important biblical teaching. We know from the scripture all authority comes from God. God is the supreme authority, but all authority is ultimately from Him. And He has established authorities in various spheres of life. He has established authority in the family. He has established authority in the church. He has established authority in the world at large. He's given us these structures of authority so that there may be order, there may be structure, there may be well-being that promotes life. It, may, it promotes well-being of humanity when authority is working well and functioning well and when People are submissive to it. Without that, there would be chaos. There would be disorder. There would be a lot of what you are seeing in our society today, in other words. Submission to authority, respect for authority, should be the default mode of our hearts. Yes, there are times when we have to challenge authorities when they are abusing that authority. Yes, there are times when that happens. And you see examples of that, for example, in the book of Daniel. You see it in the book of Acts. But before we can really deal with the exceptions like those, we need to settle what the default is. What is our normal way of living life? Our normal way of living life should be that we respect authority 
and we submit to authority. And so I want to speak just a, a minute to the children who are here today. Children, the Bible commands you very clearly to obey your parents. Very clearly. I want you to understand what that means. It's not just a moral platitude that we've been throwing at you all your life. That is actually a teaching that is rooted deep in what the Bible tells us about God. It's rooted deep in the fact that God is your ultimate authority. God is the one who has all authority over you. And one of the ways he's exercising that authority is through your parents. By giving them that authority to direct your life in certain ways while you're uh, living with them. And so I just want to encourage you kids. Don't ever, don't ever get comfortable with disobeying authority. Don't ever let that become the default mode of your heart, as though it's something you can just embrace and be comfortable with. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. Peter identifies despising authority as a big deal, as an anti-gospel matter. So that applies not only to you who are kids under your parents' authority, that applies to all of us. Wherever you encounter authority in your life, in your family, in your home, in the church, in your workplace, in society as a whole, let us be those who are eager to honor, respect, and submit to authority. And in fact, that's the, that's the main conclusion I want to draw this morning about how do we guard ourselves well against false teaching. I think we do the opposite of despising authority. That's the main thing we do. We respect and submit to authority. Preeminently, that means we submit to the authority of Scripture. The Bible alone is our infallible authority in this world. God has spoken, and we must submit everything that we think, believe, act, do. All of it must become brought into submission to what God has spoken. Whether what God has spoken offends me or not, I am bound to submit to everything that He has said. And then secondarily, once you've submitted to Scripture, you must also submit to a local church. Submit to the authority of a congregation that affirms your confession of faith and that will hold you accountable to it. Submit to the authority of a church covenant that will outline what it looks like to walk as a faithful believer. Submit to the authority of elders or pastors who will oversee your soul, who will shepherd you. If you're a believer in Christ, but you have no motivation to pursue uh, submission to the church, then really what you're saying is, God, I don't need the authorities you've established. And that's an audacious thing to say to God. He has given these authorities for your good. So come into submission to a local church where uh, while you may draw from all kinds of resources, you may go to conferences, you may have online ministries you go to, you may read books and so forth. That's great. All those things can be used well. But, but let your steady diet of instruction and discipleship come from your local church. That's the authority that God has established for you particularly. And one final word about authority here, and that's to fathers and, and husbands. Those of you who are men, walk in the authority you have in your home. Walk in the authority by leading your family, by recognizing that you are the pastor of your home. You may not be ordained to the ministry publicly, but you are in your own home 
the pastor. You are the one responsible for the discipleship of your family. You are the one responsible to make sure you are being guarded from false teaching. You are the one responsible for setting the direction. So walk in that. Lead your wives and your children well. Those of you who are wives, respect and submit to your husband in this. Build him up in this. He lives in a culture that tells him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he has no moral authority to lead in his home. He's hearing that all the time from the culture. He needs you most of all to tell him, I believe in you, I trust you, I respect you to lead me and to lead our children. Wives, build your husband up in this. Respect him. Watch him flourish when you do that. And then those of you who are children, of course, again, I'll just say it one more time. Submit to both of your parents, your mom and your dad, as they teach you the Word of God. If we do these things, submitting to authority, false teaching will have very little room to work its way into our hearts. There will be so many structures of protection in place that give us the best chance to guard against it. And so recognizing the gravity of Peter's warning, here's the best way for us to respond. Commit ourselves to walk faithfully under the authorities God has placed over us here in our homes and here in this church. So we're going to conclude, as we always do, by partaking at the Lord's table again. So I'll invite our, our servants to come and help prepare. And uh, as we do, once more, we're going to, uh, to begin at the front row here and in the overflow section. And remember to just walk along the outside of your row once the row in front of you has come. And then grab one cup because the bread is in the bottom of it. There'll be two cups stacked together. So just grab one and then go back to your seat from the inside. And we can do this hygienically. Um, so that's the procedure, but let me just give here the invitation. The invitation to eat and drink with us is, is one we make every week, and it goes like this. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has professed your faith publicly in baptism, and a mem- you are a member of a church in good standing, then you are welcome to come. If that's not true of you, then we just ask you to abstain today, and uh, we want you to make whatever is missing right so that you can partake with us. So we we ask you to abstain, not because we don't want you here. We do. We want you to take the next step uh, in coming to faith in Christ or coming into profession of that faith publicly. And so if if you have any questions about following Christ faithfully in this world or trusting in Him for salvation, we would love to talk to you. See us after the service today. So we will pray, and then we'll invite you to come to the table. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we eat and drink again today, may we do so in faith and may we be strengthened in our confession to walk faithfully before you in the face of all that threatens us. Guard our church, guard our homes, guard our own hearts from false teachings and false gospels that would lead us to destruction. Give us discernment and give us perseverance to endure as Noah did and uh, to be delivered as Noah and Lot were. So we thank you once again for Christ, for his shed blood and his broken body that give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen.